Can you hear me? Hey, there you go. There I am. There I am. <laughs> and now I can hear you. How you doing? <laughs> Good. How are you? Oh, God, there's some mountain information I've been compiling. It's a, there's a lot of new reports out on the church, Baltimore, Illinois. There's so much. We're, we're being flooded with, not that it's bringing any criminal investigations, but so I was just trying to get things into my clip tray for the show. There's a lot I can add, and there's so much more I was putting in my email that I could add in. Uh, that fill, uh, My clip tray is full, you know. The memory's only so big in my phone, so. Well, the, um, five, the five links you sent me through text, I put in the Substack post with all, oh, good. all of your documents. And what I would like to challenge you to do just to save me some work is that once I post that, and I'll probably post it sometime this, later this afternoon, go ahead and use the comment section to share additional information. I think that's the best place to put it. Yeah, but uh, are, are you going to post this in call-in? Should I put stuff in the chat here for people yeah. too or no? You can definitely put stuff in the call-in chat too. I'm just, long-term, I think people will notice the Substack more than the call-in show. But Okay. Yeah, sure. Whatever you want, need me to do. Definitely share in the call-in chat and we'll hope for the best. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, Bill, if we're going to see Rumble just like quietly delete Colin or, you know, that it's just not there anymore. So I, I hate for you to put out all this effort if it's just going to get yeah shut down down the road, but may, maybe they won't. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with it, but I trust yeah. my sub stack and I think that long term, and I'm talking like in the years to come, this will be the place where uh, people can find this show, but be that as it may, let's go ahead and start with a prayer. I like to start right on time. Sure. So, um, do you want to offer it or should I? Well, I just love the Lord's Prayer. You know, uh, we can say it together if you like. Okay. Yeah, that would be lovely. Let's do that. Okay. Do me a favor. My air condition's on and I'm part deaf in one ear. So if you just wouldn't mind speaking up a little bit, you're kind of faint. That's, that's better. Yeah. Okay. All right. So our, our, our father, our father, who art, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Here on earth, as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those. You've got the trespasser version. I know, I got the old school thing going. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom. Yep. And the glory uh, and the power forever and ever. Amen. Hey, have you ever heard the um, that song, The Lord's Prayer? Um, there's actually even a karaoke version. Oh, I've, you heard. I've heard several groups do it. I think my favorite is Take Six. It's that black a cappella group. Oh, yeah. Those guys sing it so well. All right, I'm going to go ahead and start the show. Sure. So do, do my little jingle, and then I'll do a little intro, and then I'll bring you in. All righty. Sometimes it takes a minute for this music feature to pop up. It's taking its sweet time this morning. Maybe sometime we could sing the Lord's Prayer together. That'd be fun. That would be really fun. All right, here we go. Okay. 
is the Healthy Families Podcast, and I am your host, Jenny Hatch. This is my show, and today, my special guest is William Bonatati. He has joined me to have a discussion about how we have both healed from satanic ritual abuse. This is a topic that many people don't want to hear about, learn about, or even discuss. And so it is with a little bit of trepidation and concern that we're recording this podcast. We've talked about this subject many times in the past. We first became friends about a year ago. And as we've talked about it, what we've realized is um, our fellow travelers in various spaces on podcasting apps and other places really don't want to hear about this. And so we kind of think of this as a niche show for people who are interested and uppermost in our hearts is fellow, fellow victims, those who've been tortured and molested and raped by the people in their lives. We're mostly concerned about you, your families, your lives. And so this show is dedicated to you and your healing. But if there's other people who want to listen in and learn more, we can all do a better job of helping those who have been hurt. And so, William, welcome to the show. Hi, Jenny. Thank you for doing this today. Um, as I was preparing for the show, there's my own personal experience um, with the Catholic Church and part of that, my own family. I am a survivor of incest. And then pre-sexual assault as a freshman at Fordham. Um, and then there's a bigger picture of the church and the cover-ups and the ongoing uh, uh, attorney general disclosures, but we don't see any real justice for us. Victims thought we'd get some criminal charges brought. Uh, statute of limitations are always cited as an issue, which clearly need to be changed. And um, so yeah, I think it's... Wouldn't you agree that we need a nationwide law about statute of limitations around these crimes? Absolutely. It should be uniform. I mean, there's, how is it in Missouri? It's a three-year statute, New York, a five-year statute. And the, people have to keep in mind, if we're talking the priest abuse issue for one or any church, it usually starts with the grooming process, uh, you know, touchy-feely shoulders, arms, and then, you know, beyond that. So those original crimes are always groping on some level once it reaches private parts. And the statute of limitations on those are so short. And uh, I've heard this from other victims in Colin. Um, and, and of course we have to talk, I guess at some point about it being systemic and systematic throughout our culture from, you know, uh, God, Jenny, as you know, from child protective services to teen troubled homes to, uh, Oh my goodness! Where does it start? Where does it end? Hollywood, um, just to well, name a few. Well, they always love to point to the churches in the media. They're always talking about the mm -hmm. pedophilia problems tied to various religions. Mm -hmm. But there does seem to be sort of a blackout when it comes to schools, and I feel like our preschools, elementary schools are overrun with pedophiles who have complete access to children, and that's not talked about quite as much as the religious spaces. Yeah, well, you know, you may recall, oh, gosh, 
I lost track of time. I can't imagine we're three and a half years into this pandemic. But um, so let me think now. Maybe five, six years ago, there was a, a report, quite a rash of reports of school teachers who were found to have been abusing kids. Um, and that all then went silent. You know, I, I, uh, I think things make the press and they run a cycle. And unfortunately, as victims, we witness that, and then it gets buried. Sometimes Hollywood will do something on it, or HBO, Netflix. And then it, it, it sort of circulates under the radar unless you're attuned to it. And even then, oh, it's easy to miss. Go ahead. You, you toss in the word satanic, and that's mm -hmm. when everybody's ears perk up and think, mm -hmm. oh, conspiracy theorist. Because yeah. in the in the early 90s, there was the McMartin preschool case, and it got a lot of press, a lot of coverage. And people think that that was debunked. It didn't happen. It was just a panic. And the facts of the matter are there was some tunneling that was underneath a preschool at the Presidio in San Francisco. And there were real things happening to children in that preschool. But the media campaign was the cover-up. And so since that time, and it's... We're, 30 years past, anytime you invoke the word satanic ritual abuse, you're met with one of two things. One is, well, there's no such person as Satan. So how could there be anybody who conducts rituals in his name? That's number one. No, no such person as Satan. And number two, oh, that was just a big panic in the early 90s. There's nothing to see here. Nothing like that has ever happened again. Nothing to see sit down, shut up, we don't want to hear from you, and end of story. And that's where we are today, in, especially in the media. There's a case that I'm tied to in Utah, because I've been covering it as a journalist for the past year, where a hive of these types of people were outed by their own children in 2014 in an authentic and legitimate way. You read the victim statements of these daughters of these two demonic people who were raping, torturing and engaging in sacrifice and cannibalism um, and pimping out their own daughters to other people in their network, strangers. They were prostituting their own kids for money. So these daughters come forward and share these victim statements, which are available to read on my personal blog, which is healthyfamilies.life, in a post right at the top titled No More Secrets. I obtained those through a request, like a FOIA request, and Utah and embedded them right on my blog because I felt like everybody deserved to read those girls' statements. And I was hit with a cease and desist by some attorneys. Take it down, shut up, don't talk. I told them to F off. And I still challenge anybody who's interested to go read those victim statements. If only 5% of what those girls claimed is true, the people who did these things to them, their own parents, their parents' friends, this network of of they're Mormons. They present as faithful Mormon, but they are, in fact, satanic. Uh, they call themselves the Church of Satan, Mormon style, the Mormon Church of Satan. And some of these people are high up in the church. Um, you read the statements and you're like, OK, there's there's just got to be something here. It, And yet it's so easy to dismiss because the claims are so extreme, the type of abuse that occurred. But I want to add my witness to what these girls testified about in 2014. The judge dismissed the case without prejudice, meaning, hey, yeah, there's something here. We don't have, quite have enough evidence to convict. But if something else comes up down the road, 
we'll reopen the case. Well, that happened last year. And one of the people fingered and outed in this as one of the worst perpetrators is an attorney named David Levitt, who, um, just Google his name, David Levitt and cannibalism. And there you will see the cover-up. You will see story after story after story from the mainstream press exonerating him, pointing to these victim statements as complete baloney. And one of the things I want to share about my personal story is that growing up in a similar network in the Detroit, Michigan area during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I experienced some of the same torture techniques that these girls experienced. And some of them I never told to anyone. I've never told a therapist. I've never written it in a journal. I never told a friend or a family member what happened to me. But I go read these girls' victim statements last summer, and I'm like, well, there it is. I guess that's a thing. I guess that's what they do. And it was a witness to me of my own torture. Yes, this happened to other people, other women in the same sort of situations. And it it bolstered my confidence in my own memories. Because one of the problems we deal with as victims is quite often we dissociate. It's a survival technique that children, especially under the age of eight, we go into a, a sort of amnesia with certain memories. We cannot remember what happened to us. This is a survival tactic. And I certainly have that. And so I cloistered my own memories of these incidents away for years, had no memory of them. I had lots of symptoms that something was very, very off in my spirit, in my soul. But I didn't remember what happened to me until I was in my 30s and my 40s. And this is why the statute of limitations laws are so pernicious for the victims, especially when these crimes happen to us as children, uh, how can we get justice for something that happened 50 years ago? Perhaps our perpetrators are dead or the people around them are all dead, you know, and yet we still scream for this justice. Yeah. Well, like as you were saying that I was reminded of a father Malachi and his reports on the church. He's deceased now, but um, I just found a, a book that references it, I put it in the live chat, um, uh, regarding the uh, satanic ritual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, this is a real thing that, that has been cited um, by by other priests in the church. Um, I think when, you know, I, I believe in the Gospels of Jesus Christ, and I believe Satan fell with Lucifer, one-third of the angels, and ruled civilizations as we see in the Gospels. And so the Roman Catholic Church, of course, was infiltrated. Uh, Judas was the first. And uh, it's unfortunately become, as we can see, a, a part of the culture um, that the church works to cover up. There's lots of reports on that. Um which I can touch on. And we've seen in Hollywood, we see it in the Olympics. You know, remember Nasser and the cover-up, the girls who came out originally and their reports are buried. And the FBI and DOJ as always turns out to be very involved in the cover-up. Um, even Sandusky, the case in Pennsylvania, 
the case of the um, uh, Children Health Services uh, Senator, uh, gosh, what was her name? Jenny, help me, Senator, was it Schum? Was it the Some, state senator in Missouri? Is that trying woman to woman and her husband who were murdered? Yes. They made a documentary. Yeah. yeah, I can see her face, but I can't think of her name. Yeah, it'll come to us. But, um, and this is what I'm trying to get at is, uh, we see it depicted in Hollywood and movies like Eyes Wide Shut, um, obviously. And, uh, I think this is a very real thing that's, there's statues and representations of it going back to beginning of time, so it seems. And, uh, for some reason, uh, those in power uh, who rule this world, let's let's recall, isn't it true with, in Ephesians where Paul says, um, the battle's not against the flesh and blood, it's against the principalities and powers of this uh, spiritual wickedness in this world, the darkness that rules this world. Um, and... Uh, Jesus himself said, I'm not of this world. So who rules this world when this world being civilization? Obviously, Satan fell. In the book of Job, we know God doesn't allow Satan to do anything he won't allow him to do. But it's a test for us. Uh, we suffer at the hands of those evil ones. And then we rise we do disassociate. I had that same experience into multiple personality disorder, uh, now known as disassociative identity disorder. And, uh, and then it's a matter of recovering one's memories. They come back for me. They came back in nightmares and dreams and anxiety attacks, what's known as complex post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, what are called hyperarousal states, uh, the what, flashbacks. What, how old were you, Bill, when those memories started to come back? For me, you know, I managed to black those out apparently until I was involved with a woman who became my first wife, Victoria, and I was describing to her, I was I was volunteering at Weatherfall. A friend of mine, I, he had a greenhouse, a big nursery, and his father was working there, and I first started having very strange feelings and this man was doing nothing but weeding the pots and i i was i'm a big guy i i, I guess i'm the nfl the cfl and I don't, I don't fear any human physically and this old man bent over uh literally you know what i mean with arthritis i was in terror being around him during the day while we're doing weeding of the pots and i started having nightmares and and uh, of of drowning and and of being oppressed and falling and and uh, this these horrible dreadful uh, nightmares and and then it evolved into like abuse nightmares and I was talking to my first wife and she had had more recovery than me as it turned out I didn't realize that until we started talking because she had been abused uh, she was a survivor of incest as well. I didn't know that either. To, and it, not that it would, I mean, it's just something we hadn't shared. And she looked at me, she said, I think there's something that you're repressing, suppressing that may have happened to you at home. 
And the very first time she said that, Jenny, my ego kicked in, of course, my denial. I was like, oh, you're freaking crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. How Nothing happened. You, how old were you when this happened? Um, Let me think. I was married in 1996. So I'm trying to recall the day, the days, you know, and the years. Um, I'm going to say uh, somewhere, well, I saw my first wife, Victoria, for like eight years before we finally got married. So it was in the mid-90s. I, I, to be very honest with you, I, it's all a blur recalling exactly when. Uh, and uh, But that's when it first started happening. And were you, then I... Uh, were you in your mm -hmm. 30s or 40s? Oh, yeah, I was in my mid-30s. Okay. And can I say one more thing? I My sister was living in Santa Barbara at the time, Lori, and... Uh, she did acupuncture and I went over and she was, she loaded my back up with all kinds of needles, right? And then I asked her a question. I said, Lori, I'm having all these nightmares and I was talking to Victoria and I think something happened between me and dad. I, did you have any recollection of something like that? Now, she walked out of the room, which she'd never done before when she gave me acupuncture and she left me there for over a half hour, which normally the needles are in for 15 minutes. And she disappeared and she comes back and she, she says i'm only going to say one thing i'm not i don't want any questions and i'm not going to talk more about it she said dad kissed me and tried to put his tongue in my mouth and that's all i'm going to say and i went oh okay and she said don't ask me any more questions i don't want to talk about it and then my other sister back in 2000 when i visited connecticut i stayed with her my mother had developed some severe mental illness, didn't want me around in the house, staying over, even though the bedrooms are empty. And that's something we can talk about, how it affects the family generationally. And and so my sister Linda, I talked to her one night. I said, you know, Linda, this is what happened, what I'm recalling. And Lori said this, how about you? Jenny, she said to me, oh, my God. She goes, Bill, remember the scarecrow I had up on the door when we were kids. I go, yeah, it was there year round. I never could figure that out because the Halloween decorations were nothing came down. I said, why was that scarecrow up year round on your bedroom door? We had a raised cape and at the top of the steps, there's a little landing and then two doors to the bathroom. I'm not the bedrooms. And, uh, she said, Oh my God, I was telling mom a big dark man was coming into my room every night and I was frightened. And we were kids like eight and nine, you know, at, uh, and and she goes, oh, my God, that must have been Dad. And, she, of course, if you would imagine opening a door, all you would see is the backlight, a silhouette of a dark, big, dark person. And she goes, oh, my God, that had to be Dad, she said. And she couldn't handle it. She was like, I, I can't talk about this. I have to go to work. I have kids. She just freaked. She said, don't talk to me about this. I can't even think about it. She, like, totally, I think there was a lot more there that she couldn't handle. And to this day, we're, there's other reasons, but she would rather push me away. And same thing with my stepsister and even my brother. Not, none of them, I mean, that I find that confirmation when I see that behavior. Also, obviously, they both, Lori and Linda, did confirm what appeared to them to be you know, they were victims too. And and then many years later, my mother, when I was talking to her once, I said something to her 
about issues I was having in my marriage and things like that. And, and she just said, well, it's no wonder considering what happened to you as a, as a boy, you know, and, uh, and I didn't know how to handle it. I was like, uh, then when I tried to bring it back around the future phone call, um, she just changed the subject altogether. She wouldn't talk about it at all. I, I tried after talking to my sisters, I tried talking to my mother again, you know, and she's, she was on medications and, and home, never leaving the house. And she'd say things like the house was playing tricks on her and, and that, uh, she couldn't talk about things. And I think there's a, there was a, let me say this. I believe obviously there's a spiritual component to this of demonic spiritual component. And that's, Passed on generationally, uh, I, I did recall reading a book on exorcisms about a priest who was talking about he believed 80% of the people he had you know, performed exorcisms on were victims of child abuse, sexual abuse, and that the, you know, that energy, that demonic entity gets passed on uh, through the, not only the act of the um, incest, but the, the possession or the obsession there's different levels according to the priest I recall. There's obsession, possession, and perfect possession. I'll finish with this because I, I, I went on for quite a bit. Obsession is where you're being troubled by a demonic entity. You know, you're having thoughts and basically trying to infiltrate your consciousness. And then there's a level of possession where that occurs on some level. Perfect possession is people who pray to Satan. You know, to be possessed. That's perfect possession. So what helped me just to bring it full circle was in that book on exorcisms, I read, he said the strongest prayers were the Lord's Prayer and the Hail Mary. And that's what really, well, there's a long story that you know about that where I landed in psych wards multiple times and medication forced upon me and one situation and, and attempts to have me conserved and medicated. And it was really the Our Father and the Lord's Prayer, I'd say the Lord's Prayer and uh, the Hail Mary that I just repeated sometimes for hours at a time, especially when I wake up the middle of the night with uh, what I used to call uh, the phantom demon molesting me, the, the actual, I felt the like I was being raped again repeatedly. Right. And that, that would happen night not only night after night, but many times a night. I used to try and stay up as I hated falling asleep. Sometimes I'd sit by my bed till three, three thirty in the morning because as soon as I went into bed and fell asleep, they'd start. And there was also a, you won't find this unusual, but some people may, or some people may, I'm glad we're talking. I'm going to get right down to it. I don't care what people think. If they think I'm crazy, this is my experience. And maybe the more I talk about it, the more others will feel comfortable opening up. Of burnt sulfur smell when those, those, what I used to call the phantom demon rape uh, flashbacks were happening. That's how they describe it in the school of psychiatry, rape flashbacks. No, there was a very strong burnt sulfur smell like rotted flesh every time that happened and was happening. And I think it was a real, uh, you know, demon, not 
just a body memory, not just an anxiety attack. You see, because it was a very real tangible thing to me, and it was the prayers that constantly, constantly, constantly beating back with the prayers. I found myself struggling to maintain my own sense of self. It was very challenging. It was frightening, but I had no help from the school of psychiatry. The more I tried to talk about it, the more they wanted to put me on medications, which is the worst thing you can do because you lose your ability to be acute and fight back. The, the school of psychiatry actually makes it worse, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I'd like to share my story because I feel like it's important for us to share our stories. We've, we've kind of made the case that this, this is a thing, you know, and I, at the end of the day, we don't really have to prove to anybody that it's a thing because it is. And if, if people choose not to believe that, that's okay. You know, we're all where we're at. And um, I'm not here to try to prove to anyone anything that I say. I'm just here to share my story because in hearing other people's stories, I have been able to reconcile my own abuse. And I hope that that's the case for those of you who listen now or listen a couple of years from now. That is my hope because I'd like to get to the day where I never talk about it again because there's no need to because victims have all the resources they need to have the help that the, that will help them heal and move forward. I had to go searching for my resources and praise to Heavenly Father. He put people and articles and books and music in my path to help me at various junctures where things could have really gone bad by me committing suicide or getting caught up in some, some really dark addiction that sometimes people turn to to help them reconcile their trauma and their abuse and or they get into drinking and, and uh, using drugs because that also helps them dissociate a bit from the reality of what happens to them. I was able to do my healing sober and this is part of my faith. We don't, Mormons don't drink, we don't do street drugs and although there is a high level of dependency on psychiatric medications in certain sectors of my, my people, for the most part we're sober. And so I am really happy to say that you can heal from the most egregious traumatic ritual and incest abuse sober. You don't have to get drunk to reconcile this. It's not easy. There were times when I was having a bad moment and I turned to my husband. I was like, you know, if I thought that going and getting rip-roaring drunk would stop this pain, I would go do it. You know, I had enough alcoholism in my, in my family, though, my grandfather, my brother, that was like, I can't allow myself to go down that path, not even one drink, because I know what would happen if I got sucked into that vortex. So I am pleased to say that you can do it sober. It's been 23 years since my first memory started to come into my conscious mind. I like to think I'm over the worst of it. I'm nervous about saying that because I've said it many times over the last 23 years. Okay, I think I'm done. And then a couple of months ago by and bam, here's something new that I have to grapple with. But I do think now I'm 55. Um, I'm a grandmother. I'm hoping that I'm, I'm kind of through the worst of it. But my story is, and, I, and this is something I believe passionately that another victim, Fiona Barnett down in Australia, she wrote a great book called Eyes Wide Open. And um, she claims that the networks, the satanic networks, go looking for children who have obviously 
been abused by their own parents and grandparents. And the reason why they go looking for the victims of incest is they'd like to use that as cover. If at any time the child has a symptom pop up in a public space, in a school, or in a church, or wherever that somebody notices something's off with this kid, then if it comes out that there's incest in the family, everybody in society can say, oh, that's what it is. This child's a victim of molestation and rape by their own family. And it's the perfect cover for those who are being ritually abused to say there's, there's really nothing else to see here. And so for me, as I started healing, um, my own children were assaulted by my brother. I found out about it and I called the cops. This is the first time that the police had been called by a member of my family since my grandfather had molested somebody in Detroit when he was a young man. He actually went to jail and he got, he got out because a couple of Mormon guys from the local congregation went down to the jail and vouched for him. Oh, he'd never do that. So he got off on that. My own father knew that his father was a pedophile. When my parents moved back to Detroit in the 60s, he told my mom, these children will never be with my father. They will never be alone with my father because he knew his dad was a pedophile. So there was that awareness of my own father of wanting to protect his own kids from dad. Well, the problem is he couldn't protect his own kids from him. And so as I grew up, I was repeatedly molested and raped by my own father. He taught me to um, engage in oral sex at, at a command, like he could just snap his fingers and I would service him without any question. It was like I was an obedient dog, you know, and it, I wasn't consciously aware of this. It's just something he wanted me to do. He expected me to do there be consequences if I didn't do it. And so I did it on command. My parents were part of a greater network in Detroit of people who were ritualistically being abused. They joined this group inadvertently thinking it was going to be some kind of like highfalutin movers and shakers in the Detroit area because they were very sophisticated people were part of this group. And they thought it was kind of like their ticket to the big life and come to find out, no, these people were more interested in their kids. And when you're part of the club, your children belong to the club. They don't belong to you. And these people assume that they can do anything they want to your kids. And they did. And so I was ritualistically abused by those people starting when I was an infant. My parents would hand, hand me off to them in a variety of situations. And they received uh, monetary and uh, status in terms of their place in the group based on how willing they were to hand over their children to these people. And for some reason, I was, I was designated as one of their future influencers. And so I was given this special diva programming around music, theater, that should I choose to explore a career in, the, in theater, and I did, that I would be one of their captured, uh, I don't want to use celebrity because I'm not a celebrity, but this was being done to people all over the world who were in the musical spaces, who were artists and models and in athletics and those who were going to be future business leaders. We all had kind of the same programming. And what it boiled down to is that we had no sense of self. It was like we, we were their property and we were obedient to the point where we would do whatever they would say. 
and never really question anything and just be, you know, what Kanye calls a well-behaved celebrity. And so as various people rose up in these networks to take their place in politics and business and the arts and sports and what have you, there were a lot of us who kind of like fell off the wagon for one reason or another, and we're no longer usable in our designated role because of what happened. For me, that came because I had a full-blown nervous breakdown. And when I was 21, after I had birth, gave birth to my first baby, I had a psychosis. And what Fiona Barnett taught me is that when you have that break with reality, and it often comes at the age of 21, most people brought up in these types of circles will have a suicidal overwhelm around the age of 15, and then when they're 21, they'll quite often have either like their first big schizophrenic episode, they're hearing voices, they're fe feeling besieged by evil demons. For me, it was a religious psychosis. I'm up in the clouds walking with the Savior. I'm down on earth in hell being confronted by Satan and his minions. All these highs and lows were part of my six-week psychosis. When you go through that, it is a witness that your unconscious, your subconscious mind is attempting to connect with your conscious mind. And the elites, those in these networks, the establishment, they know that you're pretty much done as, as a usable tool for them because once that break happens, um, that's when the healing starts and you really do start reconciling. So during my 20s, I didn't really have any memory of anything specific that happened. But like I said, I had lots of symptoms. I had cyclical depressions. I had cyclical moments of, of mania and overwhelm and panic attacks, especially on certain days. And I kept a journal, which really helped me kind of track when my problematic days were. And I got to where I could kind of predict, oh, Easter, I'm going to be having some problems. I didn't know why, but I just realized that that was a time for me to struggle. And so I kind of made notes and, and realized when my difficult days were so that I could anticipate them. And then I would make it so I didn't schedule anything around them. No trips, nobody over for no company, no excessive stuff outside our home. I would just kind of sit in the moment for a day or two and feel what I was feeling. And um, I think it was like 2000, maybe it was 1998. We found out about my brother molesting the kids and he went to jail. And a friend of mine told me about all these books I should read as the mom to kind of help me, you know, help them. And they were going to therapy provided by the city of Boulder and the therapist was great. But I read all these books and in this, in these books, I kept seeing myself and my brother. I was like, I was never molested. What? This doesn't make any sense. You know, I was really confused. So for that whole year, I read these books. My brother was in jail. And then through a series of events, my brother died of a drug overdose. And it was honestly Dave's death that was the triggering moment for me to start remembering my own abuse. Because up until that point, I really didn't have any sort of sense of like, you know, who, where, when, what. But he died. And three days later, I had my first memory. And my first memories involved my, my dad's brother, my uncle Paul Tripp, some of my older cousins, and they molested me as an infant they were it was a game look can we get this stupid baby to do suck off our dicks you know babies have a sucking reflex and if you stick something in their mouth they suck well they made me do that to them it was a big joke ha ha look what we can get this stupid baby to do these were the memories i processed first 
And for about six years, it was just that level of memory. And I went to a therapist who was a dear friend from our church congregation, very respected. He held the priesthood and he was someone I liked. I considered him and his wife to be close friends. I trusted him. And I worked with him for a while. And I remember this one day when he said, you know, incest is difficult to heal, but you can heal it. The really problematic things come with the ritual abuse. That's some really dark stuff. And I said, oh, you never have to worry about that with me. I didn't have any ritualistic stuff, that creepy stuff. You know, it was just this family stuff. And so I, I had back then, I'm in my early 30s. I've got this. I'm going to heal from it in about six months. Move on with my life. I'm going to help my kids heal. We've got it. And that was my attitude for several years. And then in 2011, here come all these memories. Same thing as you, Bill. Nightmares, nightmares, flashes, smells. And I was very suicidal. I was like, what the heck is this? I've already dealt with all this stuff. I don't want to go through this again. I'm past this. And, you know, the, the brain demands reconciliation. It just does. It demands reconciliation in a variety of ways. And if you don't look at it, if you, if you use those mindfulness techniques, which Fiona taught me, mindfulness is really a kind of like a gaslighting yourself type activity. Oh, I'm having these uncomfortable feelings. I'm having panic attacks. I'll just take myself over in this other place in my mind and forget about all that. And what you want to do if you want to heal is you do just the opposite. What is this? What's causing this? I need to explore this, figure out what it is. And so I started doing some research. And in January of 2012, I was so distraught that I decided to check myself into the hospital one more time. This was the fourth time, suicidal depression. And I was there for eight, for 12 days. And during those 12 days, I had just this window to kind of reconcile some stuff. When you're a young, a mom with a young family, you don't have a lot of free time. You don't have time to just think and ponder and pray and, you know, read all these books. But those 12 days, I could really kind of focus on myself. And I was able to work with a really brilliant older uh, psychiatrist from Boulder who was very well acquainted with ritual abuse. And when I told him about my initiation into the cult, he believed me. He said, yeah, I can believe that happened. And my bishop at the time is someone who had grown up in a family in California that would bring in kids who had been ritually abused and help them when they'd been taken out, of, taken out of their parents' home. So as a teenager, he was kind of introduced to all of this world, knew about it, understood it in a way that other people just don't. And I said to him, do you believe this happened to me? Do you think this is real? And he said, yeah. So how they initiated me, and this is how they initiate so many people. I got to get a drink. Talking about this stuff is emotional. When you're seven years old, they like to, they like to kind of finish your programming by the time you're eight. Because they know if you get to be eight, uh, and most religions recognize this as a key age. In my faith, we call it the age of accountability. It's the age when children are able to recognize that they're sinners and they can repent. And so that's the age when we, we get baptized in my faith. Uh, it's the age when many people hold uh, sacred ceremonies for their young people. And so the elites, the Satanists, they understand that if they don't get the base programming finished 
by the time the child's eight, it's really a lost opportunity. So they want to do all of their stuff. And when I was seven, the initiation was that I had to kill someone. And so they managed to get me off in a space where they had a gun in my hand, do it, do it, do it. I have to kill this child. And so I shot this kid. And then when it was over, all the adults went over and sodomized the wound uh, while I watched in horror. And this is one of the experiences I had when I was like, why did they do that? Why did they sodomize this wound, which I shot him in the throat. And Fiona taught me that this is just what they do when they have their blood rituals, their blood orgies, they will sacrifice somebody, you know, with a knife or with a gun or something. And then they go and they sodomize the wound. It's just what they do. So for years, I didn't know that that was necessarily Luciferian, but I've since come to find out, yes, that's actually one of the main things they do. So that was my initiation. It shattered my soul. It shattered my heart. When I finally reconciled that memory with this doctor and my bishop, that was the key to me truly starting down the path of healing. And I had to admit to myself, yes, this is real. It really happened. And that was the hardest part. Because you want to think that you're just crazy. You want to think that didn't happen. It's just a nightmare. But once you can accept, um, that's when you can just say, okay, it's time to take the gloves off and realize that they not only did this to me, they did this to a lot of people. And then when I was an older teenager, like seventh grader, um, the Satanists never worry about the girls, the young girls getting pregnant during all of their orgies. Because once the baby starts to show, they will just abort the baby and use it in a sacrifice. And abortion is their ultimate ritual. That's the one they love the most. And they make the girl eat a part of their own baby, cannibalize their own child. I had to do this twice with two of my own children as a young teenager. That was the ultimate perversion. And this is one of the things that happened to me that I've never really told anybody about except this one therapist I have in Boulder who I went and talked to like three years ago. But I'm reading these documents from the Hamlin case in Utah last summer. And here it is, these girls, they aborted a child that somebody impregnated them with and they're forced to eat their own baby. It is the sickest stuff, Bill. This is the sickest. And I was forced to do it. I had no choice in the matter. Um, and uh, I'm just putting it out there on the web, in the ether, for those who have also experienced similar trauma. And when I was remembering this stuff, I ballooned up to almost 400 pounds. And it was like I was this puffer fish that just, boom, just spread as I tried to reconcile the reality of what this, what this thing that happened to me. And since I've reconciled it, I've dropped almost 80 pounds just in the last year or two. And it's been such a witness to me that our bodies have these just visceral reactions with putting on the pounds or going into a mentally ill state of mind as a protection mechanism to protect us from the reality of these things we suffered from. And so those are the most heinous things, this murder, the abortions, the cannibalism. I have experienced those things firsthand. And then there's other layers of trauma and torture that I experienced in, in the circle I grew up in in Michigan. One of the things they love to do is gather at each other's humongous homes 
and they would have like a gambling night where everybody would show up naked and they would have various places where they could gamble. And um, one of them was they would have several kids tied to a roulette wheel that was like the size of a big merry-go-round like you'd see on a children's playground, except the kids were at the level where the average male's penis would be if they were standing. And so they'd roll the wheel around and whichever child stopped in front of the adult male, they would be raped by the guy. And we were all naked with our legs tied up and flat on our backs. And this was one of their games, you know, this roulette wheel. And so that was one of the things I reconciled was this several times I went to one of these parties and I was raped repeatedly during this roulette wheel game. And they're all laughing and having a good time. And we just had, we just had to take it. Other things they did were torturing and traumatizing our own younger siblings and making us watch. And so that happened to me several times where one of my siblings was traumatized in similar ways and I had to watch and I would be restrained. I couldn't, couldn't help. I wanted to go help. They would hold me down. So, um, there was that. And then a lot of torture of animals. They love to just kill They're killers, love to kill animals, love to kill people. And then use that blood for all sorts of stuff. They like to bathe in it. They like to have orgies in it. And they especially like to adrenochrome it up and drink it. And that also was, was part of many of the rituals that I was forced to attend as a little girl. So this is my lived experience. I give Heavenly Father the credit for helping me to survive, for helping me through the dark years when I was trying to reconcile. And in 2001, I was given this, this great blessing of working with some kind and wonderful people. I remember telling my therapist, you know, I, I just love to have another baby without all of this stuff kind of rumbling under the surface. And so in 2002, we experienced the ultimate joy of welcoming our fifth child into our lives. My little Benjamin, he just turned 20. He's, he's a new husband and he's going to be a young father. And as I welcomed Ben into my life, what I realized is that he had come to help me reconcile. As he would hit certain ages, he's one, he's two, he's five. I would remember things that happened to me at that age and it would help me to, to heal. And so I don't think anybody who's been ritually abused needs to be afraid of becoming a parent or becoming um, even someone who interacts with children, a nanny or some sort of caregiver you can trust that you will be good to that child. You don't have to live in fear that unnatural um, urges and sensations will come over you and you'll hurt that baby, especially if you'll stay sober and clear-headed about things. If you do have an occasional thought of wanting to molest or hurt, and I have had those thoughts here and there, I would just say out loud, I love you, I would never hurt you, and I would chase those dark thoughts away with music, with songs about the Savior, with prayer. We do not have to be the victim of our own thoughts. Everybody has evil thoughts all day long. And it's not our thoughts that convict us before God or before the law. The law. It is our behavior. It is our actions. And so just because you have these thoughts does not mean you're an evil person or a bad person. You can deal with your own thoughts very effectively. And so I just want to throw that out there for those who are like, oh, I could never be a parent. I could never be a good mother because I've just been hurt too much. I've been hurt too. I've been hurt really bad. 
And I like to think I have been a good mother and an effective parent. And I, again, give God all the glory that he helped protect me. And I, I think he protect my kids in such a way that even though they were hurt under my watch, I wasn't conscious of them being hurt by my brother. How could my brother do this? He loved them. I invited him to come live with us after his third divorce. And I was clueless about what he was doing to them. I was, I was suffering from the, the blindness, the willful blindness that we all kind of have. When the, when the moment came for me to say, this will stop here, this will stop now, I, I made the most difficult decision of my life. I could have easily just lifted up the rug and shoved it all under the rug and said, there's nothing to see here. But instead, I decided to call the police. And that was the most difficult decision because I knew what was going to happen to my brother in jail. I know what they did to pedophiles in prison. And I, I, while I was shaking in my boots, thinking about that reality for him and the love I had for him, I didn't want him to experience that. The greater choice was to say, this will stop right here, right now. And it will stop with me making that phone call. And you as a victim or the parent of a victim, you have to be willing to say, it's going to stop and then do the right thing. And it may be the hardest choice you will ever make in your life. It, that choice led to my brother's death. I don't claim that I killed him, but he could not live with himself anymore. And so had this drug overdose a year later. And while I struggled with the guilt around that, I was still grateful for the sake of my own children to say, no, it needed to stop and it needed to stop now. And so that's where I feel like that's a sign of a good parent. That's a good sign of a sign of a good mother. That when you find out and realize, yes, these children are being hurt, you do something. You say, we've got to make this stop. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts of my story. Bill, I'd love for you to take the time to share your story as much as you feel like you can share. Okay, yeah, thanks for sharing all that. Um, you and I have talked quite a few times, and uh, it's always it's always triggering to share these things, but I think it's important um, that as survivors who've been able to recover the memories and even had siblings confirm, which I found to be helpful for me. You know, it, it helps me realize there's many, many other people, obviously, uh, who grew up and this is, we're only hearing the tip of the iceberg is what I'm trying to say. One from people who maybe uh, have had recovered memories, but still are in doubt. Uh, are they just, and that doubt is also planted by some therapist, you know, well, maybe you're imagining or, and friends and relatives may suggest that. But I think the more we talk with others, in our circles and we we find at least i did that confirmation not only with the family issues but also and and also i have to say it's a double-edged sword because while i got confirmation then i was pushed away those same people who confirmed were not ready and maybe they never will be to actually be able to talk about it and and cope with it um so it was it was 
oh, my God, you know, you too. Oh, and then, of course, I want to talk. It's like, and no, 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 they, they're not capable. So that, of course, the more I want to try and talk, the more they want to push me away. And so it was alienating at the same time. It was like re-traumatizing, re-victimizing on a level. Not that they meant it. It's just the way it felt to me, you know. Like, I'm still telling the truth. Why am I being pushed away? You know? And you know I'm telling the truth. Why are you pushing me away? You know? It's very, very uh, difficult to deal with. And then the more I tell them, see, now at Fordham, let me tell you, okay, so then I went to Fordham University. I got a football scholarship out of high school. I went to Votech High School, studied electrical, different things initially, and settled on electric. I had no intention of going to college, but I had to end up being a good enough athlete to where I got a football scholarship. So I always had an interest in religion, even bought the, the Bhagavad Gita when I was 12. I don't know why. I always had this keen interest in religion. And anyway, I so I took uh, a theology class with Monsignor Ralph Tapia. And the first, you know, you go, the class is full, and you all have two weeks, I think it was, best of my recollection, to decide if you want to keep the class. And within a short period of time, a lot of people funneled out because Tapia had a drinking problem. He would smell very strongly of alcohol and sometimes come in and not be very coherent, you know. One of the reasons I took the class and stayed in it was because we were told by the team captains, you know, take this class. There were certain, you got to remember, but, okay, so Fordham, I'm trying to be brevity here, but there's details, right, that lead to the story and why it's relevant as I go forward. So I get a full ride to Fordham. We were supposed to end up playing, uh, and we played one game in the Meadowlands, and the whole idea was to build Fordham up to the days when the, they played Notre Dame in the polo grounds. I mean, like, where they fill the whole stadium. The alumni wanted to make Fordham a powerhouse, you know. And uh, so by my senior year, we were supposed to play Army. So I was a high recruit for Fordham, and the plan was, you know, I would be playing on that level. And uh, so the uh, – oh, God, I remember the uh, – Head coach, Dave Rice, he was also the athletic director. Well, through the captains, the captains communicate to the players what the head coach and a athletic director wants. And so we were all told, those of us on full scholarship were told to take Monsignor Ralph Tapia's class. That's another reason I took it. But I was, I was interested. So I kept going to class, even though we were told we didn't have to go to class. Because we were jocks, and as far as Tapia was concerned, didn't care as long as, you know... <laughs> In other words, don't even bother. We're going to get an A. You know, it's going to be a gimme for a grade point average. And this happens in universities, which is why Fordham, I think, one of the reasons they chose not to build the program up at that time and instead eliminate any future scholarships and keep it Division Three versus moving it up to 1AA, which we're supposed to move it up to, to play Army. And so... Uh, I was told my scholarship would be grandfathered in, of course, but I didn't want to stay playing Hofstra and the local schools and stuff. Because I, got, I went there so, to play Army, you know, to, to travel, to go out to California, play Santa Clara, to play on a 1AA schedule. So anyway, so 
I kept going to Tapia's class because I thought, well, maybe he'll come in and I'll learn something. But it did get worse to where there was like 12 kids in the class. So I stopped going. And I started going to the gym. And at the end of the semester, captains, I forget his name, it was an Irish-looking fella. I can't remember his name. He came back, well, you got to go see Tap. You bring him a bottle of scotch. And I'm like, that wasn't in the deal. I have no intention to bring this guy a bottle of scotch, but I'll go see him if I have to. So I go to his office. My father had a drinking problem. There's no way I was going to bring anybody a bottle of scotch. So I walk through the door. And Tappy's at the door, of course, and I'm approaching the desk to sit down. There's two chairs, and next I know I get groped from behind by this guy who starts giggling. He was a little man, too, with the toupee, glasses. Turns out he died like 11 years later after talking to D.A. Johan Hananis in the Bronx and Chief Security Bill McSorley at Fordham years later. He died in 1989. I was at Fordham 1978. And I, he had a toupee on and glasses, and I was I was so shocked. I didn't know what to make of it. I I was 255 pound freshman, and I looked at him. I towered over him. Not that I'm that tall, but he was a little fellow. I'm only six one. I'm not like six seven or anything. And and I looked at him, and I I was just like, "What are you doing?" I couldn't even speak. And. He giggled. And see, part of it, like I said, when you read about sex abuse, is that's how they test even the young adults. Like, are you, you think this is good? Are you going to respond in a way that you want more? You know what I mean? You know, it's a, and, and I just turned and walked out. And to be honest with that, I kind of buried it. You know, I, I, I mentioned to the captains in the locker room and everybody had a good laugh because, of course, everybody thought it was funny. We're young, you know, 17, 18. Well, I was 17 when I first went to college. 18, 19-year-olds, whatever. And I was like, you bastards. <laughs> I was like, you set me up for this. You knew this was coming. They said, I think they had an inclination that Tappy was gay. I had no idea. But I think the captains knew because they started laughing like crazy. Like as if, you know, so anyway, guys, boys will be boys. They prank one another, right? And I was embarrassed and I was angry, but it was a groping, you know, and I, of course, I was big enough and old enough to turn away, and that's as far as it went. Now, however, if you all recall, there was a time when the DOJ was supposed to do this deep dive investigation after the, you know, you had the grand jury investigations, well, for heaven's sakes, there was three in Pennsylvania, people don't realize, 2005, 2011, 2018. 2018 was the big one that made a big splash. You had uh, Turner Shapiro's report on the Pennsylvania Catholic Church. And before that, you had uh, the Spotlight team out of uh, Boston, the Boston Globe. I believe that was 2000, 2001, best of my recollection, where they started posting about what happened with Cardinal Law in Boston. And then the movie Spotlight came out in 2015. We had the John Jay College of Criminal Justice Report in 2011 come out. We had, so boom, 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 the UN report on the Vatican 2014, which, by the way, the Vatican was totally non-complicit. They wouldn't comply or cooperate at all. And I'm just reeling off some of the things so people who have uh, Catholic Church history can resource these uh uh, so there's, the point is now we've got a lot of recent attorney general reports that have come out, uh, like attorney general Letitia James, who actually sued the Catholic, the Buffalo Diocese, 
in 2020, November, I think it was. And in the live chat, you'll see that she actually, her assistant Jennifer Summers and Investigator Doyle, who I reported to, sent me a thank you letter. So that's in the, the live chat. And I was, what happened was I made my reports initially. Can I, can I say something, Bill? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. This show is being recorded on Substack and Twitter. For those of you listening who hear Bill's talking about the links he's putting into the chat, that is on the call-in version of the show. And I'm also going to put quite a few of his information, including the letter he received from Letitia James' office, on the Substack page tied to the show. So that's just for further edification and proof of our stories. So please continue on with your story. Yeah. So when I originally made my reports, it was actually, best of my recollection, March of 2017, to the Chief of Security, Bill McSurley at Fordham, and eventually had a conference call. That was Rosehill Campus. And then a conference call with him and Jim Hanley, Chief of Security at Lincoln Center Campus. He happened to be sitting in for Bill. Bill was getting ready to go and have his, a hip replaced. And so we had a three-way conference call. And they were very supportive. Of course, they initially they were going to vet me. And they looked at my school records and asked me lots of questions about the, the campus and what could I tell them? You know, they don't just say, oh, okay, thank you. You know, they, they pry and they, they want to know what you know and what you can recall. And I happen to recall a lot for some reason. I don't know why I just have that ability. And I was explaining everything to them in great detail. And I remember Jim Haley saying to me, I don't know how you do it. What's up, Jim? He goes, I can't remember what I had for dinner two weeks ago. <laughs> You remember back, you know, almost 40 years ago. I don't know. It just come, you know, certain things I remember, you know, whatever. And I think part of it is you remember these things that are kind of traumatic because how often does it happen in your life? You get sexually assaulted by a priest, you know. And uh, so anyway, so, uh, so I made my reports. They vetted me. They thanked me. Uh, they told me to report to D.A. Johanna Hernandez in the Bronx. I did, and I was referred to Sister Arlene Clifford for Cardinal Dolan, who was a victim's advocate. And uh, then, as it turned out, Tappy was not ordained. Monsignor Ralph Tappy was not ordained in New York. He was ordained in Fresno. And so I was told to contact uh, the Fresno Diocese and Fresno Police and Sheriff's Department. Well, this is important. Anyone who's involved with any church, uh, what's called victim's advocate, sometimes you'll find they're not very advocating. Uh, Cheryl Sarkeesian, I made my report. She thanked me. Uh, she eventually sent me an email, uh, gave me the phone numbers of the Fresno police. Um, and I couldn't get anyone to respond. The sexual assault sergeant of the Fresno Police Department, I can't remember his name right now, it was so many, several, quite a few years ago. I'd have to look back at the email. But anyway, I couldn't get him to respond, nor his assistant detective, and I'm like, so I just kept leaving messages. And then time went by, you know, you get busy with your life and such, and I I followed up with uh, Cheryl Sarkeesian, the victim's advocate, and I didn't hear from her initially, and Anyway, you know, you get busy with the life, Jenny, and, and so probably about two years, not quite, went by, and finally I got a response from Shill. They had gone to a different, they had changed bishops, 
One of the reasons they changed bishops is apparently the bishop who was there when I started making my reports was notorious for covering things up. And uh, oof. and so finally, I, when I Cheryl started responding to me again, a couple of things were very offensive. First, she said, well, you know, you learned to be a victim at home first. Because I had told her what happened to me at home, and I was—I couldn't believe it. I was like, "What?" The victims' advocates for the church—the first thing they do is try and negate the victim and make excuses. I found this even uh, the Bridgeport Diocese victims' advocate, Erin um, Neal. The first thing she said to me was, "Well, you know, regarding your problem, my problem, you know." This is what they do. They project that they are not helpful. I didn't find, although Sister Eileen Clifford was, she was terrific for Dolan. And uh, she actually referred me to Aaron Neal in Bridgeport. But between Aaron and Cheryl, I'm like, this is way wrong. You know, I couldn't believe what Cheryl said to me. I was like, what? I said, wait a minute. I don't have eyes at the back of my head. And Tapper's going to walk up from me behind after insisting I come to his office, Cheryl. I, you know, I, I take great offense to your accusation that somehow, because I learned, because I was lessened at home, I learned to be a victim. I can't believe you even said that to me. I was so upset. And since it's come out, by the way, Church Militant, this, I'm going to give people a couple of references. I tell my story so I give people references. Church Militant, Michael Voris, they're a reporting group that makes videos. You can find them on YouTube. They cover the Fresno Diocese that the Fresno police wouldn't take 95% of complaints, even for people in Fresno and Bakersfield. And there was a Monsignor Craig Harrison, the notoriously, uh, he had like 40 peak victims and victims' witnesses. And the Fresno police covered this all up for several years, just like they, the, the FBI covered up for Nasser and the Olympic Committee, just like Sandusky, how they covered up. You know, these things get told by people in authorities, and then they're covered up initially to protect the, the overseeing body or power and then years go by more people are abused and then you hear that it comes before some congressional investigation or something breaks on it this is a pattern right that the reason i'm talking about this too is we get re-victimized re-traumatized as victims trying to address these issues are we attacked now in new york i was thanked okay let me tell you, I had three different responses depending on the state. In New York, I was thanked by everybody. Where it happened, they did, they had the ability to investigate, look at my school records, ask the questions about the campus that only Chief Security Bill McSurley and I would know, or somebody went to Fordham, right? Okay, in Fresno, I got you here with a husband. Finally, Cheryl Sarkeesian, after two years, I said, did you ever contact anybody, Cheryl, to vet me or anything? What happened to my complaint? They had shelved it. I said, did you contact them necessarily at Fordham? Did you contact, did you have his phone number? She says to me, after two years, did you have his phone number? It's like, oh, my God. Okay, 
to this day, I can't get the Fresno Sheriff's Department even. They just keep referring me back to New York where it happened. I'm like, no, New York says you need to take the complaint too because he was ordained there. And then you can look into sex trafficking. When priests or anyone's moved across state lines, and if there's an accusation in both places, that would be sex trafficking, right? Now, so they would have to have it on record to happen to me in New York, and then did they have any accusations of this same priest who was ordained in Fresno, I think 1965, I have to take a look, by John Paul, Pope John Paul, I put a link on that ordination, and that he was out of Fresno, in the, in, and I was about to, did I put it in? I, I think I did. Yeah, the Fresno B, so it's in there. To this day, I can't get the Fresno police to respond in any way like they should, according to what I've been told by the authorities in New York and even by Aaron Neal, the victim's advocate in Bridgeport. So, at one point, Cheryl Sarkeesian, the victim's advocate in Fresno, says to me, well, you know, you might want to try a local sexual assault group in your area. They should be able to make what's called a courtesy complaint for you to get the Fresno police to cooperate, right? I've been arrested in this corrupt state talking about the crimes of the church three times for harassment. Once by the Christian Counseling Center of St. Paul's Church, while I was in psychotherapy, talk about being re-traumatized, re-victimized. I can give you more details about that, depending on how much time we have, Jenny, or what you want to do. But then court operations and judicial, when I wrote, I became a pro se litigant, meaning self-represented party. And every time I got a, I've been arrested four times in this corrupt state, I've gotten everyone dropped. If you look my name up online, you're like, this is a big guy. Wow, what a big asshole. Look at the well, reports on him. <laughs> this, this to me, Bill, is where your case, this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of blowback on victims. Yes. Because you are making the case that you have identified specific people tied to the Catholic Church and your Fordham University who are implicated as pedophiles and you want justice. And the answer back to you is, oh, we're going to arrest you. We're going to lock you up in a mental hospital. Yep. We're going to force medicate you to get you to shut up. Yep. And, and you fought. You didn't you didn't kowtow or say, OK, I'll take my punishment. You fought back. And, and this is where you're so different from other victims because others would just give up, but you're still. That's a big comment. And this, this is where you need to just really say, this is the important part of the story. And somebody should make a movie about Bill's life and how he has fought back because he has never given up. He's persisted in demanding justice and he has a story to tell. So listen to this part of the story. If you listen to nothing else, this is the most important part. Thanks, Jenny. So, so initially, let's talk about the first arrest real quick. Lawyers, office, not related. Client still owes me five grand. I'm probation for larceny for 47 large. She was. Cons me out of five grand. A guy, I was in the psych wars 2012, by the way, twice for suicidal ideology. Uh, access one, suicidal ideology, access two, psychosis. The, remember those flashbacks I told you all about and the body memories and nightmares and when that those got triggered when my mother and then my father died. And I came back to Connecticut. There was a lot of reasons why I came back. It's not another chapter in my life, but I spent time with my dad trying to help him. And anyway, anyone who knows anything about trauma, 
and I've learned since. I didn't know what was happening. Triggering. Uh, anything can trigger a memory, a nightmare, a flashback. And being around my father, and by that time, I already recalled enough and talked to my sisters, you know. But I was still trying to help them, you know. Uh, one thing about a child when it comes to a perp like a father, there's, it's not just the, the abuse. There's so many other memories as well, you know, uh, that were fond memories. You know what I mean? Before I was abused, I wasn't abused until I was eight. Prior to that, I, I have fond memories of doing lots of things with my father. And, uh, I mean, my, I remember a plastic lawnmower that I would push alongside him while he was pushing, like little kids have a plastic lawnmower. And if, for a little while, he'd go real slow and then finally mom would say, come on, Billy, come on, mom. daddy's got to keep get this done, come on in, or, you know, leave, you know, come this way or something. Or being wheeled around the wheelbarrow when we were, we used to, there was no leaf blowers back then. We used rakes, put them, pile all the leaves at the bottom of the property, and then they'd come and suck all the leaves away with a big machine. And so anyway, there was a lot of fond memories. My father coached the Wee basketball team I was part of. And so anyway, and so we, we, we have this mixed uh, set of emotions and it's, it's not all bad, and it's very, very confusing. Uh, and the child has no ability, once the abuse happens, to uh, to cope with it. And that's how we end up with disassociative identity disorder, once known as multiple personality disorder, because we have to compartmentalize it. There's no way a child's mind can possibly integrate this in any way. And it's even very difficult to do as an adult, you know. So that's why a lot of people just push it away and don't want to deal with it. Or they can't, you know. They find they, if they try and cope with it, they drive deep into depressions and suicidal ideology before they can come out another side of it, you know. First the triggering and then the nightmares and then, uh, you know, it's... So, okay, so why is that relevant? So I come out of the psych wards 2012 and I referred... So that was in Rhode Island, Woonsocket, Landmark Hospital. And then I was referred to Butler Hospital, which was intensive outpatient therapy in Rhode Island. I was a Rhode Island resident at the time. And then when I moved back to Connecticut, I called the Rape and Incest National Network, which you can find online, uh, Rape and Incest National, uh, RAIN is the acronym, R-A-I-N-N. -N. Good resource. You can find that online. And based on your zip code, you put in, it's an automated system, you get referred to a lo local sexual assault group. And that happened to be the Milford Ray Crisis Center, Milford, Connecticut, based on my zip code, even now. And that, I think, was 2014. And so I counseled there twice a week with Lady Cindy, got on great with her and Peggy, the victim's advocate, and even did a walk a mile in your shoes event where I'm too big, I'm 400 odd pounds, like... Jenny said, oh, the Pituitary Network. I'm glad as I'm telling my story. In the references, the Pituitary Network, Linda Rio out of Camarillo. I can rhyme almost any time, even when I'm talking something, right? It's just so R-I-O, Linda Rio. She writes two books on the Pituitary Endocrine Disorders and Trauma. And she's got lots of other doctors that she collaborates with. And part of that is Cushing's disease. And even pituitary tumor, which I ended up having for a brain MRI over four years. Patient at Sloan and then yell Smilo tracking the tumor. 
Which and the Cushing's disorder. I gained 180 pounds in 20 months. Almost impossible. You can't do that. Like I gained 75 percent of my body weight in 20 months. And anyone who knows anything about diet and exercise or even obesity knows you can't overeat that much unless. In other words, that that I gained 50 pounds in one month. I remember, and and finally, that's when it started cluing people in over the period of time how quickly I gained the weight and the way the weight came onto my body. And that's where it got kind of a, uh, a clue as that there maybe had a pituitary tumor and then there was brain MRIs. Oh yeah, there's a tumor and we need to track it. You know, if it keeps growing, it turned out my uncle Sam died of a pituitary tumor that spread into his ocular nerves and his motor function nerves. Now they can go through the nostrils and ex excise it. So they tracked mine. It was a microadenoma called secretory microadenoma that caused super high cortisol levels, a 24-hour urinary cortisol test. The normal levels are 4 through 50. I don't remember the unit of measure, but 4 through 50 is normal, and mine was 141.6. Anything over 100 is clear indication of Cushing's disease. So I was a full third over that, 141.6. And... Uh, and so they tracked it, it doubled in size at first, and then it started apparently, uh, shows up as a hypodensity in the brain MRIs. And I remember the last time I saw it, I was a Dr. Jai Rocha at Sloan, then I transferred my care to Yale, it's closer, more convenient, Dr. Inzuki, the pituitary endocrine disorder clinic. I remember the last time I went to see him, which was quite a few years ago now. He said to me, well, Bill, I think you're good. He goes, it, the hypodensity is all but almost all faded out. I think you're fine. He goes, if you start having any more symptoms, you know, weight gain or uh, tunnel vision, uh, if it starts to affect the ocular nerves, we end up starting to get tunnel vision, you know, uh, come back, come on back. And so now I'm in the stage what they call pseudo Cushing's, where it's, it's in the, it, the disease is in remission. I still have the weight I'm battling with. And I still have, uh, uh, flashbacks, body members, and nightmares, not as bad as I used to. That can happen any time, by the way. Anyone knows who's been through this, anything can trigger it, your subconscious. And you never know when it's going to happen. You know, that's the whole, that's why it's post-traumatic stress disorder. And in my case, complex post-traumatic stress disorder is a diagnosis uh, from many doctors, uh, Shoreline Wellness Center, Two PhDs with 65 years combined experience, Dr. Ray Michelle Bullock, and then Andrew Cass of the Sterling Center of Diplomatic Psychology. So getting before then, I went from the Rape Crisis Center. I'm sorry, Jenny, do you want to say something? I just wanted to say that I got a similar diagnosis when I had my initial psychotic episode when I was 21. They labeled me oh. manic depressive. I never felt like that fit. I did have highs and lows, but... The post-traumatic stress that I was di diagnosed with in 2001 was a much better diagnosis in terms of my symptoms. And I think it's true for many victims of sexual assault, ritual abuse, that, that it is post-traumatic stress, classic post-traumatic stress. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Dr. Rissuri was great and uh, Andrew Cass of Sterling Center. Now, when I was, what happened was, so I went from Landmark Hospital in Woonsocket inpatient twice, suicidal ideology. Then I came out, They, by the way, in there, they they didn't have to bring me to the probate courts to force medication on me, which they have to in Connecticut. They're, they're just like, you're going to take this, Alexis and uh, Risperdal. 
and they stand there and they stand in front of you and they wait until you swallow the pills. They look under your tongue, blah, 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 blah. Well, they had me on so much Risperdal and Selexis. I remember walking down the hall one time and I fell against the wall. I literally lost my balance. And there was a guy in there, you know, many intelligent people in psych wards, by the way. You know, trauma, uh, people, one thing that I find, and Jenny, I, I, is oftentimes there's a bigotry and bias towards people with mental illnesses. You know, we were traumatized as kids, many of us, many, many people with mental illnesses from trauma of all different kinds. Not only as kids, but as adults. And it doesn't mean when I hate the stigma, oh, you're mentally ill. It's like, yeah, and what's your point? Does that change the facts? Does it change the fact that my story has been corroborated by experts and even jumping forward in September 2019, it wasn't until I got the thank you letter from Letitia because she opened her investigation beginning of 2018. It still took a year and a half for her to get somebody else because, of course, when you make a report, she doesn't make it public, you know. She oh, got corroborating so, evidence. Go ahead. To your, to your point that um, the mental hospitals are filled with great people, some of the most amazing conversations of my life have happened in mental hospitals, talking to fellow patients, hearing their stories. And because the numbers of people in America, especially using psychiatric meds, are so high, we've got lots and lots of company in terms of people struggling with their emotions. And so my rejoinder, when somebody says, okay, we don't want to hear from you because you're mentally ill is, uh, so the, the marketplace of ideas, the political world, the machinations of all of these entities, the only people allowed to talk to talk about them are the mentally well. Is that your point? You want us to just go away and not, not talk? We do have some skin in the game in terms of our own experiences and our stories. You know, if you're not going to listen to us, who are you going to listen to? You know, the, the drug reps from Eli Lilly and Merck, do they have the whole story? Do they have the important information everybody needs? Maybe what we have to con contribute is important and powerful. And this is something I've observed too, Bill, is that there is a bravery amidst the survivor community uh, you and I both are willing to use our own names, our own photographs tied to our opinions and our in internet uh, interactions. There are so many people who hide behind fake names, fake photographs, that put a moniker of a dog or a, you know, animated figure up for their face, and they spew their opinions like nobody's business, but they don't want to own it. You know, you and I are willing to own it. And, and put our faces, heck, in two minutes, somebody could find exactly where I live and try to come mess with me. I don't care. I am going to speak my truth. I know what I know. And I'm going to keep talking. So I applaud your uh, passion about the med mentally ill being given a microphone in these dark times. Yeah, well, in fact, there's a... Dr. Siebert, The Four Double Binds of Psychiatric Patients, excellent article you can find online. Dr. Siebert, I don't want to call it S-I-E-B-E-R-T or S-E-I. I can check it out. Anyway, close enough. Dr. Siebert, The Four Double Binds of Psychiatric Patients. You know, let me say, 
I didn't, I've worked on federal Superfund sites with security clearances and heavy equipment Superfund sites. I have a college degree in resource economics at the University of Rhode Island. Initially, I went to Fordham on a business, uh, I was going to study business, business college. Fordham's not that easy school to get into, you know, and the only reason I transferred to URI was because, again, they, rather than build the program up at Fordham, the Jesuits decided not to do that at the time, and so Dave Rice went to coaches convention and come back and he goes, look, I don't want you staying here. He goes, you, you're a better ball player than get stuck here at this level. He said, uh, I set you up. So I got a full ride to University of Rhode Island. The reason, one of the reasons I mentioned that is I, I studied resource economics there, which was only offered at MIT and URI at the time. And I graduated from URI in, let's see, I went to Fordham in seven. I graduated from URI in 1983. Uh, I really didn't want to go to grad school. I, I was, too much of a jock. I didn't like sitting indoors. And but anyway, in the year two thousand, went back to visit Professor Sutton, uh, who was head of the department at the time. I came back to Connecticut to help my mother. And my told you came to help her and see my father. And that's when I talked to my sister about what happened to her, my sister Linda. And and when I'm getting at a Sutton, he looks at me. He goes, "You know, if you want to come back to college." Um, he said, I want to offer you a full uh, grad assistantship. He said, not only will we waive your tuition, we'll pay you 14500 a semester. All you got to do is come back for a year, get in-state tuition. That way you'll have an easier time waiving your tuition. And then while you're doing that, you can audit some classes to kind of refresh your memory. And I was like, mm, let me think about that. I had a girlfriend in California at the time. I was, I had been work my way up learning to run heavy equipment, started as a laborer in the field, and I was hemming and hawing. What do I want to do with myself? I still, you know what it was, Jenny? I just didn't want to sit in a cubicle. I, I was de determined not to do that. And, of course, if I got a grad assistantship, I'd be indoors, sitting inside, you know, on a computer. That's just not who I am. Although I love the degree, uh, and I did very well with it. But I, So the reason I bring that up is to say, I was smart enough to where they offered me a grad assistantship. You know, I ended up on through my own. I was when I got into operating heavy equipment in Santa Barbara. I started as a laborer. I was determined to learn it, and I learned on the job over a period of time. I was too old to get accepted into the training program for the union. I was thirty-seven at the time. You had no older than thirty. I was missed it by months the union training program for heavy equipment, but I worked my way up to a level two heavy equipment operator for Shaw Environmental, where it's actually employed on federal Superfund sites as a heavy equipment operator. And I learned that on my own and on the job. And there's a lot of ways I did that, which I'm not going to great detail. And then, so, yeah, I got complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And I challenge anybody out there to then say, well, you're just mentally ill. Because nobody can reach those levels of accomplishment and then become a pro se litigant like I did and sue three law firms, the Christian Counseling Center of St. Paul's, the Thomas, well, okay, hold on a second. Let's see. I've successfully litigated for a year and a half. I had 10 law firms on one side of the aisle, 
between the, the defendants in my four suits and the three law firms I sued directly, and me on the other side of the aisle. And for a year and a half, every arguable motion brought before the judge by opposing counsel, motion to strike, was an oral arguable motion. Then later in another hearing, the 10 law firms, one after the other, motion for non-suit, another one later motion for summary judgment. Arguable motions, I never lost an arguable motion in front of Judge Stevens versus 10 law firms in three separate hearings. I'm just mentally ill. So there's people in calling who like to default to that and other people. And I find that extremely offensive because I filed motion to recuse judges. I've gotten judges recused on every level. And multi I've, I've been in the family courts. I've been in probate courts. I've been in housing court multiple times. I've, I've filed lawsuits in civil. I got arrested four times. I got everyone dropped. Not because anything my public defenders do. Because they are nothing but corrupt prosecutors. I've never done anything illegal. I've never admitted probable cause. I've never taken a plea bargain. If you look at my name up online, you'll see a bunch of smearing, libelous, slanderous accusations. And then anyone can go to Connecticut Judicial Case Lookup and look my name up on the criminal. Follow the left sidebar on how to get through the navigate through that. Connecticut Judicial Case Lookup, you'll find my name, William Bonatati, on the defendant criminal, and there's a zero. So they arrested me four times illegally. They couldn't get one to stick. And I want to pass on a reference for people to know, because victims know this. We get arrested for harassment. We get arrested for harassing the perpetrators, the Catholic Church's St. Paul's Christian Counseling Center, Wallingman Psychotherapy, are you kidding? What were they covering up? What was beneath that harassment arrest is the real question. Because that's a completely false complaint that I got dismissed. And I'll tell you what that is. They had recently changed priests. And I was the new priest, Amjad, I can't call him father, that would violate the Gospels, Matthew 23, the seven woes of hypocrites, where Jesus said to a man who called him good father, call no man, first of all, he said, why does thou call me good, Jesus said. Call no man on this earth your good father, teacher, or rabbi, for you have only one, your father in heaven. He wasn't talking about your paternal dad. Obviously. Jesus always referred us to the heavenly father. So any priest who calls himself father is violating the gospels of Jesus Christ, the very first seven deadly sin of pride. And I make that case to every priest, and I'm in counseling, and the new priest, Amjad, says we got rid of the last priest in a crisis situation, quote, unquote, while I'm in going back to church. And he says, I had to take a pay cut. So he asked the whole congregation to give him more money because a poor man took a pay cut to come to our congregation in an emergency. Well, I don't even want to start unpacking that because right away I should have known I should have ran away from that church as soon as possible because Jesus sent his disciples out without money bags to heal the sick. Uh, cast out demons and raise the dead. For him to ask, he was living in a giant salt box, two-story, right next door, and he's asking us for more money. I should have ran out of there, but I didn't. I was in counseling there, and so everything was fine when I was talking about incest twice a week for eight months. As soon as I heard that, I was like, wait a minute, because I was going to church, and I would go after 
my counseling sessions every uh, twice a week. I'd go into the chapel, pray the rosary. I was trying to reconnect with the Catholic Church. I was under the mistaken impression, Jenny, since Dallas Charter in 2000, movie Spotlight 2015, that the church had reformed itself, right? That was all about church reform. ba 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 Baloney. That's all smokescreen. Just been a right? cover-up. It's and all a cover-up. Mm -hmm. You and I have both observed that around the world, mental hospitals are increasingly being used to deal with medical professionals, doctors yep. and nurses, who are outliers in terms of the vaccine. And, oh, crazy doctor, crazy nurse, we have a way to deal with you. We'll just tuck you away out of society with your noxious opinions that affect the bottom line of our practice of medicine and stamp you with a mental illness diagnosis end of story there is a huge group of people that i would like to extend the hand of fellowship to because you will find quite often in in mental health situations those who are willing to speak the truth come what may even if they lose their profession their family and it is this willingness of society and the powers that be to take those people and pluck them from our midst and say nothing to see here it happened to Kanye West. Oh, Kanye, you like Donald Trump. You like MAGA. Well, we're going to just take you over here and reprogram you, you know, threaten you. You can't see your kids, can't see your family until you shape up. This is the direction our society has been hurling towards for decades. And it's, it's time for it all to stop. It's time for it to be exposed. And some real justice happened to those of us who've been victimized by it. Yeah, it's called, the, the way it's phrased is weaponizing psychiatry. Dr. Bregan, B-R-E-G-G-I-N, been fighting this since the 70s, he and his wife. He was first fighting real lobotomies, you know, which are legal now here. But now they use a chemical lobotomy. Children Health Defense Fund, Robert Kenny Jr.'s uh, organization, Dr. Bregan, uh, there's an article there you can find, Children Health Defense Fund, also the expose, another uh, periodical, I don't know what else to call it, puts that out. And uh, there was a CHD out of Canada, that I remember the host who interviewed Dr. Bregan. It's very well done. There's an embedded video in that expose article. It's fascinating to hear Dr. Bregan and what he and his wife has been doing to fight the chemical straitjacket that gets put on people. This is a totalitarian, long, well-known, going way back to before the Nazi party, totalitarian tactic to take dissidents and say they have a mental illness. And in fact, um, Fairfield Hills in Newtown, Connecticut had a notorious uh, mental institution there with underground tunnels where they did all kinds of connecting the buildings and all kinds of lobotomies. I mean, it's Fairfield Hills in Newtown. And I'm in, I grew up in Trumbull, Connecticut, which is, I used to go to Camp Whippewag in Newtown. I ride a bus uh, as a young boy up to Camp Whippewag in the summer times. But um, yeah, Fairfield Hills, of course it's shut down. But um, so anyway. The mental hospital where I was put in Pontiac, Michigan, it was called Clinton Valley Center. It was one of those old, big, old-timey yeah. hospitals. They kept a lot of prisoners there who had been deemed mentally ill. 
That mm-hmm. is where I was I was gang raped by four orderlies the first night I was in as a young twenty one year old mm-hmm. mom. And uh it's been raised to the ground. And I thought about suing the state of Michigan and suing the hospital just for the rapes. But um once I saw that the actual building was gone, it, it kinda comforted my heart. I'm like, uh, I don't think I'm gonna bother with this. But um it was comforting just to see that it was no longer there. Let me tell you about mental institutions in Connecticut, Connecticut Valley Hospital, where they, I ended up spending two months on the third arrest. I'll get into that, how that happened, but they eventually, what they do here, okay, but real quick, there was a church arrest, I'll cover it, there was a lawyer office arrest, which was a total fraud. The first two cops wouldn't arrest me, good guys, and I always commend good cops, by the way. I like to take the time to do that. Uh, of Scott Thompson and an off of David Leos, wouldn't make a bad collar, hadn't done anything that the third officer wrote, Massa. You know you're getting screwed when you complain against one cop and commend two, and the chief writes you back a letter about your complaints against three. What? <laughs> it's in writing. I complained, I commended two and complained about the arresting officer who came later, by the way. I want to give everybody another reference, because if you fight back the system, you're going to need this one, okay? The Crime Scene Investigation Guidelines, CSI, you all heard of CSI on TV, right? Crime Scene Investigation TV shows. CSI Guidelines, the PDF online, commissioned by the Department of Justice for All Law Enforcement 2009. If you get arrested acting as an advocate fighting the church or whatever you choose to fight, and then let me tell you, you fight the establishment predators, and that's what they are. I don't call them the elite. They're predators. They oftentimes suck off the public tax tea on top of it. And then they use the judicial system. Just look at the Steve Dosinger case, you know, for example, or the movies, uh, let's see, not only the movie Spotlight, but you also have the movie uh, Civil Action with John Travolta, Robert Duvall, placed based on a true story different topic but anyway so what i'm getting at is our courts are nothing but a racketeering extortion ring for the predators period in power the ones in charge that's my experience and i go with george carlin who says i love the i love the prophet george carlin who said you'll never see the ten commandments and <laughs> thou shalt not steal thou shalt not uh, lie thou shalt not cheat in a courthouse full of politicians, judges, and lawyers, because it would create a hostile work environment. And there you have it. And that that's our courthouse. Oh, boy, let me tell you. So they're going to stand up and protect one another. Now, there's always good cops in the middle who won't make bad arrests. Same thing with the Christian Counseling Center arrest. There was a Manny Dominguez good cop who visited me. I was trying to get, as a, as a client of a counseling group, that was licensed by the Department of Health, American, American Association, Marriage and Family Therapists, and the head doctor, uh, I think it was Alexander, if I'm not mistaken, he's retired, AMA, right, American Medical Association. They all have ethic codes, the Hippocratic Oath, confidentiality clauses, we're not supposed to break the confidentiality between you and them unless they feel you're a threat to yourself or them or somebody else. Um, obviously, uh, there's 
well, many issues that were violated in that. But you, as, as, a, as a client of a counseling group, you have rights. You have rights. And especially when insurance is paying for it, you have rights. Or even if you're at uh, the Milford Ray Crisis Center or the Sexual Violence Alliance, that's an implied contract. They're funded by the state and by the federal government. DPH and the feds, and you're a citizen of the state or wherever you are. That's an implied contract. You see what I mean? Obviously implied. You have rights. And, by the way, they're all mandated reporters, according to the statutes in your state. In Connecticut here, uh, let me think. There's 46A-11B, I think, is the mandated reporting requirement. Um, so, you know, all these things were violated every arrest. So let me tell you something, knowledge is power. And when I, because in my degree, we had to develop our own parameters, study uh, many different things that develop what are called cost-benefit analysis studies for environmental projects and things of that nature. When I started getting retaliated against, I went into the law rule book. I said, well, let me study the law rule book. I don't have to study the whole thing, but let me see if I can find something here that can help me. And then I got online, and I learned about the crime scene investigation guidelines. And if you read that, and you then you'd say to your public defender, who's really there just to clear the docket and get you to take a plea bargain, that's exactly what they're there for. I want all incident police reports. So you're going to have to file a motion for continuance because I need to see everything against me at the arraignment hearing. I want you to ask to get that, 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 that. And, you know, then the prosecutions get prolonged. And you and what I did was I study all the incident police reports. Then I file my citizens' complaints and my commendations. Why? Because that puts internal of every police department in a double bind. Imagine, here you are complaining against one or two cops, and you're commending other cops in the same police department. So, mm. so then it comes down to, okay, here we go. Okay, Mr. Bonatati, we'll offer you a nolly every time. I'm like, the first time I was offered a nolly, I'm like, what's that, Paul? Paul Essek. Well, then, then they always give me supervisor. Once I know you're not going to roll over, even though Class C misdemeanors, ladies and gentlemen, the smallest possible criminal charge above a traffic ticket, literally, is a Class C misdemeanor. Which they couldn't prove, because what are my emails saying? What's the material aspects of evidence? What's the alleged voicemail? Do you have a recording? You see what I mean? If you're going to bring a case against me, you have to have material evidence to back it up. It can't just be a hearsay complaint. Where's the email you're claiming is harassing in nature? Where's the voicemail you're claiming is harassing in nature? Et cetera, et cetera. Where's the surveillance footage to corroborate that? You see? And then none of it ever existed. It was always a hearsay false complaint to try and get me to back off every time. That's all it was, an abuse of power every single time. And so everybody eventually they're always... Is everybody listening to what Bill's saying? If you happen to be arrested for being a nuisance or demanding justice, first of all, they want you to just settle, right? They want you to mm -hmm. just go away. But if you persist, listen to what Bill's saying. He's, he's done this successfully over and over, fought back. Yeah, four times. In fact, the, I was communicating at one point, see, now when you have public defenders, okay, they're supposed to file certain motions for discovery for all what's called inculpatory, that's evidence that would impeach you, 
and exculpatory evidence. The prosecutor exculpatory that would exonerate you. The prosecutor is required to turn those things over anyway. But you're public to see if you're indigent like me because of the disabilities, etc. Both psychiatric complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which of course all this triggered. Oh my God. For years I got triggered from this abuse of power. Unbelievable. Like just, it was so abusive that it even put me at a high risk of a catastrophic health event written by Dr. Ray Suri and Michelle Bullock. 65 years combined experience, two PhDs that were assigned by the court at one point wrote reports on my behalf that I would then submit to the bail commissioner's office. That all this was putting me at a high risk of a catastrophic health event pursuing something they use called the Holmes Ray Stress Scale. And I scored so high in that, not even getting to my physical disabilities, just on the psychiatric and the trauma, that I, that Dr. Ray Sir is like, we, Bill, we could easily double your 400 score, but if, once you're above 300, you're in acute risk of a catastrophic health event. So um, he pleaded. If, if any of you have ever heard the term lawfare, this yeah. is what he's describing. This is lawfare. This is prosecutorial misconduct. There's a case law, Brady versus Maryland. When they do not disclose exculpatory evidence and prosecute you illegally, do you know these court prosecutors even, bear, like Manny Dominguez, a good cop. He comes to my door when the, actually I was staying at the Extended Stay Hotel. Why was I in the hotel? Because I was getting brain MRIs. So I was looking for a room to, you know, Craigslist, whatever. And finally people would say, well, you know, tell me a little about yourself and what's going on. Do you have a job? And well, not right now. Why not? Well, I'm getting brain MRIs. I'm a patient at Sloan. Right away, it's like, hey, people, I'd love to help you. But, you know, I got a mortgage to pay. I got to rent the room. What if your tumor gets worse? You end up like your uncle. You know, I, they're not supposed to discriminate, but everybody's human. And I wasn't hiding anything. And I was like, no, nah, I get it. But I had to try. So I ended up in long-term hotel stays. First, it was extended, say, for almost four years in Hilton Hampton for another year and a half. And um, while I was going through these brand variety process and everything. So, okay, so... Um, that was a whole nother chapter because then I ended up suing the hotel industry. Well, let me tell you what, they're as crooked as, as used car salesmen and they violate contract. They do, uh, they're, they're, oh my goodness. So I ended up suing Extended Say and then Hilton Hampton American Express. That was one of my four lawsuits. And then the probate courts. Any of you ever heard of the movie, uh, Care a Lot? I Care a Lot on Netflix, right? I Care a Lot. Yeah. I'm so crazy. Guess what? The DOJ indicted and then convicted the court-appointed accountant, Joe Castellano. That's a mob family name, by the way. Joe Castellano, it's true, who was a court-appointed CPA. My father's probate matter went to prison for fraud and Ponzi scheme. Joe Castellano out of Wallingford, Connecticut. Now, when people are corrupt, whether it's a church or an accountant for the courts or the probate courts, it's not just with Bill Bonatati. I'm just a guy who didn't have the money for a lawyer and then like not in the big club that George Carlin talks about, you know, <laughs> the big club, the American Bar Association, you know, it's a big club. We're not in it. Well, I'm the guy who's like, well, I'm going to stick by the law rule book and I'm going to write the motions to recuse corrupt judges. Oh, here's another research for you that really helped me a lot. There was a woman caught in the system, just like me and Jenny, but she was out of Rhode Island and the, the, the site is caught like catching fish, caught.net. 
caught.net, just like that. It's a hyperlink. If you type in search caught.net, now pro se is two words, P-R-O, new word, S-E. It means self-represented. The pro se way. But just caught.net alone will get it to you, Jenny, if you try it. Caught.net. She was out of Rhode Island. That It's all about stopping injustice. And that woman... Kudos to her. I got to pay it forward to her any chance I get because she saved my ass. <laughs> Let me tell you what, Jenny. She, like you, she went to town. Like, you've gone after the vaccine industry and everything, and God bless you. You know, I've learned so much from you. She went to town. She was my, you're my mentor in that, right? A hundred percent and many things. And she's my total mentor on pro se litigation because she's got links in there. Oh, my God. On how to deal with corrupt judges. It's advanced litigation handbook. I mean, it's like a law library, just her own site. She got caught in the system, illegally prosecuted, and she she responded by with this, you know. So caught.net, the pro se way. I learned so much from that. The other resource, anyone, uh, your public defender's uh, rule book for the indigent in your state, will tell you what your public defender should be doing for you, which they're not going to do unless you make them do it. If you're fighting the establishment, the the, pro, the public defender wants you to take the plea bargain. You know, the, you, you're always going to get overcharged. The good cops won't do it, but the people who become lieutenants and chiefs, unfortunately, realize to be that chief and lieutenant, they often have to compromise themselves and protect the establishment predators, like the Roman Catholic Church, like the Mormon Church, like, in my case, the hotel credit card banking industry, which which collects over $100 million, just the hotel industry, for the state every year. It's always about the Benjamins, ladies and gentlemen, and the power and control they have through the legislature. Right, the legislature. We have a supermajority of Democrats between the House, the Senate, and the Governor. They can pass any bill they want. And you know what? The Connecticut Business Industry Association boasts on their own site how they block what they call negative bills, like the Attorney General of New York. I'm sorry, of Connecticut, Attorney General Tong. HB 7222 is a bill where he could have represented the disabled personally against predatory business practices. Well, the CBIA, Connecticut Business Industry Association, along with the Chamber of Commerce, consider that a negative bill. Mm -hmm. Right. Negative for them, it might cost them some money and stop them from being predatory. You know what I mean? Of course, I don't describe it that way on their own site. You know what I mean? And so they friggin' eviscerated it and knocked it to, right out of the ballpark. The U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops U.S. is the lobbying arm for the Catholic Church. They had spent, as of 2017, $10.6 million in New England states alone. Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, because the Pennsylvania grand jury investigations, the one state that actually had grand jury investigations, 2005, 2011, 2018, brought the focus, wham, right back to the church where it belonged. We have not had one grand jury investigation into the church in Corrupticate, but they've had three in Pennsylvania. And this is the problem, in Connecticut especially. Just like in Utah, where there's 33 states in this country, 
I'll get back to how to fight off your arrests in a minute. There's 33 states in this country where the church, where the Mormon and Catholics still do not have report have to report priest abuse or clergy abuse to the police. Still, the statutes in the legislature give them a workaround, right? But according to federal case law, Section 18, U.S. 792, harboring a felon is a felony. And so as an organization, be they profit or nonprofit, tax exempt in the case of the churches, if they're harboring felons with any type of internal laws like canon laws like the church does, I can tell you the canon laws specifically, that impeaches them as violating, you know, their felons then on an organizational level based on Section 18 U.S. 792 and Connecticut Penal Code 53A, 53A-8 sharing criminal liability as a, either an accomplice or an accessory. So you could be the perp or you can be protecting the perp on two levels, depending on how heavily involved you are. And so anyway, of course, was I born knowing any of this? No. Did I go to law school? No. But this, these resources that I'm telling you about can lead you to learning all this. This is what I did. And, uh, and so then to wind it back to my individual cases, uh, while I was being thanked in New York from 2017 and then throughout, I was prosecuted here for the complaints about the church three times. And it wasn't until September 2019 that Letitia James's office got corroborating evidence on Tapia, and that's when things really blew up for people here. Because then I was referred by the Foreign and Board of Trustees to Detroit Law to talk settlement. With a former, by the way, and the church hired a former U.S. attorney, Fordham did, Fordham University of Jesuit uh, College. Uh, uh, former, let's see, U.S. attorney David Kelly. So now you got a former U.S. attorney representing Fordham University, and, and not to mention they have the degree there on cybercrime, uh, a, a master's degree you can get, and a lot of cops take that. Fordham University is very involved with criminal justice, obviously. It's a law school, you know. It's, it's one of the top hundred schools in the country. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Huge alumni base and lots of money behind it. Uh, the mayors run the giants. There's a lot of people, heavy, heavy duty alumni back in the Fordham. And, here in New England, we're Connecticut specifically, we're 51% Catholic demographically, whereas the world is 16%, 32% Christian, but 16% Catholic worldwide. We're 51% right here. A lot of cops are Irish, Italian, and English, and a lot of them are Catholic, and a lot of them are Knights of Columbus. You know, Catholic Knights of Columbus, part of the Freemasonry ladder to the pyramid up the top of the pyramid. The Knights of Columbus Tower in the Haven is the head of the Knights of Columbus for the whole country. And Bill, yes. I'm going mm. to give you a five-minute warning for ending the show. Is there a way that you can kind of wrap with the rest of your story? I'll try. Okay, so if you get arrested, those are some of the things you can resource. If they offer you a knowledge, you may want to take it because if you don't, they may weaponize psychiatry, use what's called Department of Mental Health Addictive Services, the acronym is DEMAS, to have to go before these uh, forensic teams that uh, Fordham alumni, Mike Genovese, Fordham Fordham, was a master social worker, 
And then Yale University, Dr. Zong, Yale was started by the Congregation of Catholic Churches to train ministers, Yale Law School, Yale Divinity School, Yale Psych, Yale Medical, Harvard Law, Harvard Divinity School, yada, yada. You get the picture here in Corrupticate, the Constitution yeah. State? This is mm -hmm. the heart of the beast. That's where I'm going with it right now. This, in my opinion, is Revelation 17, the Horror of Babylon Return, without doubt. Okay, it needs to be exposed. And anyone who, and now it's not just the Catholic Church, of course. So let's be clear. Jenny's got her story too around the Mormon Church. So trying to get back to, so you're up against principalities and powers of the spiritual uh, wickedness in high places. That's Ephesians 6, 12 to 13. That's the spiritual battle here. And then you end up bringing in the law, the man's law, and then canon law, and weaponizing psychiatry, and guess what? What did Jesus say? The letter of the law killeth, the spirit of the law bringeth eternal life. So getting it right back to Jesus and the spirit of the law, it was it was praying Psalm 91, 23rd Psalm, uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, that I had to deal with this on all levels, as I've described to this point, uh, and uh, prosecuted illegally, uh, uh, but let me say this, if you do that, commend the good cops, combine against the bad, and then you start writing motions to accuse judges, caught that at the pro se way, we'll tell you how to do that, and get it out to your House Judiciary Committee. Uh, I've got 12 file boxes worth of legal documents in the back of my car and references in the trunk. Uh, uh, to state senators and house reps on the state and federal level, uh, I, I, I don't want to take more time to tell you each one. I've written to uh, the House Judiciary Committee co-chairs. When you have a complaint against judges, you got to get outside the box. The box being your local courthouse, even the district, get your complaints out. Then the DOJ district office happened to be in the Haven, 157 Church Street. Then the DOJ in Washington, Civil Rights Disability Unit, Civil Rights Unit, Office of Inspector General. Just... Flood, up, flood people, Connecticut Legal Rights Project, state-funded, Disability Rights Connecticut, federally funded, every state will have that. Um, the uh, the Hearst Organization, the Connecticut Post, the Hartford Courant. Uh, in other words, you let people know you're not going to be bowled over. You are going to be the squeaky wheel. This is what I did now. Now, for some of you might say that's overwhelming. I got a family. I got kids. I got a job. Well, then you may take the nollie. The problem is, if you take a nolly, know this. If you get three of them in the three-strike rule, you're going straight to DOC. You're going straight to the Department of Correction up to three months pretrial. Now, what they did with me, because I never would take a nolly, they weaponized psychiatry because I'm the one who insisted on trials. I wouldn't take that nolly because I knew I wasn't going to stop. If I, You see what I mean? I couldn't afford to get three nollies on me back-to-back, -back, Jenny. Because that would have put me right into jail on a three-strike strike rule. So I rejected every nolly. They weaponized psychiatry. First two cases claimed I was delusional bipolar with grandiosity complex, not restorable to competency, forced me into jail diversion programs, had to go like at least once a week, sometimes twice a week to meet with the jail diversion counselor, uh, part of the Department of Mental Health Addictive Services, the third arrest. I had Dr. Zong testify, it may be restorable. That's when they put me in the psych ward. Whiting CVH, if you look up Whiting Central Valley uh, Hospital, connect, uh, let me see, Whiting CVH. In Middletown in 2017, DOJ investigated big 
exposure there. I was heavily involved in that on patient abuse, psychiatric and physical patient abuse, and letters to the Connecticut General Assembly. If you look me up online, guess what, Jenny? They only they only printed the odd pages. If you look at the bottom of those pages, you see one, three, five, and seven. I noticed yep. it was every other page. Yep, so they only get half my story, and it's not congruent. I wrote that when I was in the psych ward, and then I wrote a 40-page report to the DOJ, who was investigating at the time, Department of Justice, and uh, that went to the House Judiciary Committee, da 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 da, da. So, you know, I just, I, I never stopped talking. I never stopped complaining. Uh, they finally stopped arresting me when Letitia James got corroborating evidence, and then the DOJ actually indicted and convicted the CPA and my father's probate matter all of a sudden it's hands off because it all got exposed. Yeah, but it was a, such a beautiful story, Bill. If your football career did nothing else, it taught you when you get you knock down, you get back up and start running mm -hmm. right at them again. And it, that's what happened. Done, and it's such an example to every survivor, every victim to say you can fight back. You need to use your wits and your intellect and your dogged determination. And boy, you are just right there and the belly of the beast at Fordham and in Connecticut. And, um, you know, Bill has done some amazing journalism around the Sandy Hook story. I would encourage mm -hmm. you to go listen to him on Colin as he shares the details of that scandal. And so I'm going to wind down the show. We wanted to keep this to two hours. But I will say to any of you who are thinking about attempting to get justice through the courts that you need to be wise, you need to listen to the Holy Spirit, you need to realize that they would love for nothing more than to re-victimize you, but you can win. And Bill has won. He's free. He is not on any court-ordered medications. That side of his story really resonated with me because I was determined not to go on psychiatric meds back in 2001. And a judge said, yep, have to take the drugs. And so for a year, I had to bow down to the law and poison my brain with that chemical lobotomy. It's so pernicious and evil what they do to us but we can win the day and i i am so proud of bill and my friendship with him because these stories resonate in my heart and and tell me that we can win we can push back and so if you are caught in in one of these similar messes don't lose hope don't give up they are more afraid of us than we are of them and the reason why is because we have the truth on our side. And so I'm going to end the show on that note. Bill, do you want to say any final, final thing? Oh, boy. Um, I was just wondering that. I should, is, what, what else can I tell people? Um, you can uh, DM me through the call-in app if you have any questions. Uh, I'm happy to respond that way. Uh, again, uh, I, I have an issue with recording my my episodes, for some reason, no matter what, I've tried to work through with the call-in app. Uh, haven't been able to work through that. But if if you friend me in the call-in app, then when I do uh, do an episode or show, I invite all of my followers. You know, if you follow me, you'll get an invite, and you can listen in and ask questions. Or right through the app, you can direct message me if you want. Uh, that's the only place I got kicked off every other platform, Jenny. Fable book, I call it fake book, fable book, telegram, even, and then even Twitter. Go ahead. They do. They just want us to shut up and sit down and go away. It's so obvious that, um, there are certain people who do not want these stories being published, but I'm going to publish right. them now on 
three or four platforms, and we'll just see what happens with this episode. Can I say one more real quick thing? You mentioned Sandy Hook. In the Rumble Library, if you search the Rumble Library of Sandy Hook videos, there's FOIA hearings, Freedom of Information Act hearings. There's two. There's a great video by a Florida State Trooper and his attorney and who, who petitioned those FOIA hearings. It's called Sandy Hook Revisited, Wolfgang Halbig, Kudos to that beautiful man, uh, retired school principal, retired Florida State trooper. He's just like the FBI district officers who finally, uh, in front of uh, Jim Jordan, you know, the House Judiciary Committee on Federal Overreach, where they uh, that got all exposed on January 6th, you see? That's Wolfgang Halbig. Trust me, if you go in, Sandy Hook revisited Wolfgang Halbig. Dear Wolfgang, I've talked to him three times. He's a beautiful man, and we're hoping to get this before the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, I've been in heavy contact with Jim Jordan's office, and he's got a lot of people petitioning for that. And uh, so, Rumble Library, you do a little research and learn a lot more about this, um, if you like. Yeah, and my my places are uh, my WordPress is healthyfamilies.life. My Substack is jennyhatch.substack.com. This is where you'll find the show embedded on this date, which is July 2nd, 2023. I'm also on Twitter. And I do not have really anything to offer beyond um, a podcasting space where if you have a story that you want to share, I would love to talk to you. I think our stories are so powerful, especially for other victims of ritual and satanic abuse. Uh, we can win this. It's been prophesied in the scriptures that Babylon is going to fall in one day, in one hour. It's just going to collapse in on itself. I think we're getting closer to that day. And on that day, I will be out on the grass next to my apartment dancing for joy that we are no longer uh, being controlled by these entities and humanity has been freed. And if Jesus Christ did nothing else during his ministry, he came down here to free us, free us from sin, free us from these principalities that do want to work darkness in our lives and give us the courage that Bill has shown over and over these last few years in his own cases with this lawfare. He's just been so brave and it's been an honor for me to call him my friend. And so I'm going to close down the show. Thanks again. William Bonatotti for your stories. They're epic and awesome. And we will we will talk another day. Amen, sister. God bless you and everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you.